Are you looking for the best tips and tricks to run a successful dental practice? You're in the right place. Welcome to Bulletproof Dental Practice, interviewing some of today's most successful dentists with your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Bulletproof Dental Practice podcast. Today, we have both hosts with us. I, Dr. Peter Bolden and Craig Spodak, and we have the pleasure of speaking with Craig's office manager, Erica Pusillo. And really, I was just corrected kind of offline, and really Erica's title is not really an office manager so much as it is a practice manager. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, a practice optimizer. So for all intents and purposes, when we talk about, when we say kind of office manager, Erica is running his large epic practice. Um, So Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to kind of dive into this a little bit. And, um, and uh, Craig, why don't you give us a little lay of the land of kind of um, how Erica's position, you know, today we're going to talk about leadership and, and how it relates to scaling your business, because a lot of our listeners are always asking, like, you know, how do I scale and what can I do? And leadership, as, as you and I contend, is a big component, um, because like you just alluded to when we, before we hit record, you know, running a four-person office is is quite different than running a 40 or 50 uh, team practice. And so if you don't have, you know, your ducks in order at the level of having a team of four, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's quite, quite different. So why don't you talk about kind of the value that Eric has brought to your practice and the evolution in, uh, in Spodak Dental? Thanks, Peter. So Erica came on board um, eight years ago. Uh, and she was actually a dental assistant to my father. And my father, God bless him, he's got a patience that uh, is incredible. He, he's a great teacher. He, he taught her to be an amazing dental assistant and um, then wound up, Erica came out as my primary assistant. And little by little, she started uh, really kind of self-educating and diving in more and learning more about leadership, management principles, and um, has just been there evolving over time. And, you know, when you start off in business, you, you, you do all the things that you're supposed to do on your own, and you kind of, it's business as usual, but as you grow through different levels of development, business development, you start to have to redefine who you are and reinvent yourself. I think there's a common saying that every new stage of your life requires a different version of you. And Erica has been very successful at doing that, developing her, uh, developing herself through different cycles of um, uh, of utility in the office. And at one point, she was kind of quasi, I'm using finger quotes, like office managing and um, chairside assisting me. And I was realizing, like, look, if I'm going to be in the chair as much as I am, I need someone that's got the ability to influence the team members and hold them accountable. We don't love the term manager, so we don't have an office manager. We've never had an office manager, but Erica seeks the areas that need improvement and tries to optimize those areas. So if it's why our, don't you love the term manager? Um, well, people don't want to be managed. No one wants to be managed. It's like everybody likes to buy, but no one wants to be sold. There's certain terms that are. Kind of, you know, there's a new consciousness in the in the in this age where people will define it as millennials or different work ethic, but no one wants to be managed anymore. People want to contribute, and managing has to be done. It just doesn't. You can't have it come from an external source. 
So we, we call Erica the practice optimizer. So she goes in an area that needs to be optimized, like our PNL, which you know about, Peter. And we're going to pay attention to that and, and have something, you know, we're going to get a better result there. Uh, but management, you know, is, is something I want to let Erica talk about, but it's, it's just kind of, it, it doesn't feel good anymore. No one wants to be managed. Management needs to happen. It just has to be, con- it has to come from inside. It has to come from like a self-management. So leadership kind of, you know, I think is one of the biggest components of, of, uh, wanting to scale because, you know, without it, you're all going in the wrong direction. I mean, Erica, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to tie in back to what Dr. Craig was saying. Um, not only did I have a, a hunger or a want to become better and, you know, I, I read a lot and I went to continuing education and, and CEs and specifically leadership and practice management, um, but he also gave me that freedom and that space to be able to step into that position and to create. So as much as I took that on my own, it's definitely a partnership with having him be comfortable and have the trust with me to allow me to lead to my fullest and best capacity. And leadership is essential for practice growth because there's not one person that has every single skill that's needed in order to run a practice. And that person's human too. They're going to get sick. They're going to need a day off. They're going to want to go on vacation. So to have an idea of one person running the whole show means that everything is relying and dependent on that one person to have that happen. And then the breakdown occurs when that manager's out or maybe the manager's out and then the team feels like they can goof off or, or have a, you know, a day to kind of um, relax. So we want right. to take that out of the equation and, and introduce the leadership and leadership is, bringing other people around you up and into ownership. So it's not everybody comes to me to get permission to do anything. It's rather we have a discussion and and, um, make decisions together on what's best for the team and for the practice. I like it. And and I want to clarify leadership because – Leadership is such a cliched word. It's like I'm what when I, I hate to think of the listening audience picturing that um, you know those those silly little business posters that everybody has like leadership excellence. It's like a crew boat like rowing in a river and a whole bunch of people rowing or an eagle soaring high. It, it's it's such a it's such a cliche leadership. But really, what we're talking about is a manager manages people. Leaders manage the stuff. A manager is focused on the process. Like, do it this way. Don't you dare ask me why. Just shut up and do your job. Whereas a leadership, leaders are focused on those results. And they're the one, leaders are asking questions. Manager, managers are doing all the talking. So it's a very subtle distinction. Some people that are listening, well, I don't see the difference. It's a huge difference. So what happens is we have all these people in, in our in the workforce for 126 years or 130 years since the Industrial Revolution. People have showed up to work with the idea that bosses think they're stupid. So the worker is stupid. They're as strong, but they're also as dumb as an ox. And they need to be managed every step of the way to just push the wood into the pencil machine and make pencils. Don't ask me why. Just do it. Just shut up and do it. 
So we have people that literally have their brains turned off. They show up in their cars, park at work, leave their brains in their car, and don't turn on their brain again until it's 5 o'clock. And we wonder why we don't get the engagement that we really want. So really, this is focused more on the lines of turning people's brains back on and getting them to think again. So, but, but that's, we have to undo a lot of it. So uh, I'm blind CC'd on a lot of the emails here. And Erica will tell someone like, well, what's your best and highest use of your time? Well, well, I guess I could use some more over here, you know, and do this. Well, just, and then, then the employee will talk to Erica. Just tell me what to do. I'm like, well, I don't know what you do. You're in insurance. You should, you, you know your job better than anybody. No one can, you know, no one can think this out except for you. And it's very subtle, but little by little, we actually help them turn back on, turn their brain on and start thinking that no one's thinking anymore. And this is all really a big um, push that we've had from working with Chuck Blakeman, who wrote those two uh, books um, in the business world. Wouldn't you agree, though, that some people don't have don't want that level of autonomy? They're not comfortable with self-decision. They don't. You know, like some people like to be told what to do in the aspect of direction. I mean, especially in the eye of uncertainty, if it's not what they're comfortable with or they don't know that, they like to be told and directed and led by someone that they they trust. So how do you how do you get around that counterculture idea? So that's absolutely the first thing that everyone says or everyone thinks when we start talking about this kind of thing. And it's that person is really just trying to avoid accountability because when you have someone telling you what to do, then if something comes out wrong or not right, it's not their fault. It's the person that told them to do its fault. So yes, that's the first thing that we encounter when we try to get other people within the practice to step up as leaders and to take ownership of their position within the practice. And the way to get that out of people, just like Dr. Craig was saying, is just to ask them questions. They know. So the leader's job is to ask really good questions. And if you're not getting the answer that you want, change the question because they know what to do. They do it day in and day out, especially if you have someone that's been doing, for instance, Dr. Craig mentioned insurance. They've been doing insurance for five to 10 years. They know what they're doing when it comes to insurance. Not me, but they do. So asking asking the right questions to get the result that you want turns their brain on and starts to um, have them more engaged and enrolled in the process. Yeah, I can see it. It's not something that is, hey, hey, team, guess what? Everyone is in charge of making decisions on behalf of their you know, department. It's not a free-for-all. So it's a very... Um, guided interdependent process meaning that instead of boss manager making decisions and saying team now you have to live with this and execute it it's saying hey team this is not working out right we need to improve it and let's start talking about it together and come up with a decision together let's ask questions let's get all the information and then let's make the decision as a team versus top down uh, all right. And so, Erica, this this philosophy that you've kind of used, has that really helped you? Because you guys went from – you guys had pretty pretty steep growth. Um, and a lot of that was due to the fact of building the new facility. But did you kind of adopt this philosophy prior to that scaling and that expansion? I mean, has that always been the culture of, of the practice? 
No, we have gone through such a learning curve and we still are. We're learning every single day. So the idea that anything will be perfect, that actually will prevent you from taking the steps to move forward because nothing will ever be perfect. So it's just about starting and trying. And if something doesn't work the first time, then identify what that is and change it. Um, And if it does, then multiply those things that work great. But when we went through the process of going from 18 members to 52 within three years, we found out really quickly that what we were doing with eight did not work with 52 at all. Every single thing we had to do, we had to reinvent. And it was through trial and error. So one of the things early on, um, I was really focused on training. I did a lot of the training before I did more of the management And I realized, wow, there's no way that I could possibly train all these people myself and do my job as a dental assistant and try to learn and be more incorporated in in practice management. I couldn't do it all. So the evolution came from having a couple of people that I worked with that said, hey, you know, help me out with this process let's grow each other, let's, um, essentially it was leadership training with these other girls and um, have them really own the training process when we onboarded new team members. So that was the first start. I I have a question to interject. I'm sorry. I want you to keep with that, keep with that trajectory where you're going. Craig, did you, did you recommend that they do this or was this a self-starter? So the idea was, um, came through a, a, a long evolution of changes and trial and error. But even going back to the early days when I first took over the practice, you know, 10, 11 years ago, I had this idea that I didn't, it didn't resonate well with me that the boss has all the, has all the decision power. And I never, I was never taken aback by people giving me their guidance and their input. I like when people are thinking, I don't want to be the guy in the room with all the answers. I get really nervous when I'm the one who seems to be the smartest person or has all the information. So we tried a whole bunch of different ideas. We never really had an office manager. We've never identified an office manager in our office ever because that I, I knew that by creating that position, everybody would start to become stupid over time, that they'd stop thinking. So maybe about like four or five years ago, I learned about a concept called the holacracy. And the holacracy was something that Tony Shea from Zappos was putting into place, and then Google quickly adopted it for their own use at, at corporate headquarters in, uh, out in uh, California. And we were very early adopters of it as well. I basically sat everybody down and said that um, it's going to be different. There's going to be no more uh, hierarchy. There's no more org chart. And every business consultant at that time was telling us, you need an org chart. You need an org chart so everybody knows where to go. So I was really resisting this idea that people should have job descriptions and org chart because then people could easily say, well, that's not my department. But everybody's job is to take very good care of the patient. So we instituted holacracy. And just like what happened in Amazon and Amazon, I'm sorry, not in Amazon, Zappos, uh, it turned into a total shit show. And even at Google, it threw everybody in a tailspin. Everybody had a mass exodus. All middle-level management was throwing their arms up and walking out. And uh, Zappos and Google scurried to try to reinstitute some sort of normal business policy back in. And it really didn't work for us either. It created like a, vo- a void where people didn't know who to go to because we were hybridizing the concept of traditional business and no management. And 
when I got introduced to Chuck Blakeman, kind of coincidentally, I was doing a lecture for Bonnie Hickson of the Progressive Dentist Magazine. And she said, hey, you're going to be co-lecturing with this guy, Chuck Blakeman. I said, well, who the hell is that? She said, well, he wrote uh, 2010 and 2012 uh, best-selling business books. I said, on dentistry? He says, no, but he's it's very applicable to de- dentistry. So I read his books. Um, he has two books, uh, Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea. It's a subtle distinction between employee versus stakeholder, someone who requires supervision and constant guidance versus um, just someone who just requires leadership and results um, identification. And he wrote another book uh, called Why Making Money is Killing Your Business, a subtle uh, idea about if you work in your business rather than on it, you'll be trapped forever. And Peter, you and I know some people that are falling victim to that. <laughs> uh, so, so Chuck really opened up my eyes and I, um, I lectured with him. It was like going to church for me. It was like, I couldn't believe what he was saying. And these ideas were always things I had in the back of my head. And even when I wrote my description about what I wanted my future practice to be like, which was written almost eight years ago when I had three people and a 2000 square foot office, I wrote a descriptive vision of what my future world is going to be. A lot of the ideas about um, self-management or self-managed teams and team accountability were unknowingly written into that. So I have this vision that I wrote, like this, this, this idea of my future day. And it was written in the first person, like it's actually happening. Like, Hey, I walk in my office. I'm super I've proud seen of that, Sally. Yeah. You shared that with me a while back. And that was oh, pretty, yeah, yes. pretty neat. I wish so, we could post that. Yeah. I mean, I'm totally cool to do that. And maybe we could talk about that in another, another one. But, but I actually, like you, you write shit down and it gets real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really does. It really yeah. does. I mean, every, I mean, not to compare myself to the greats like a Walt Disney, and I, I don't mean to draw this illusion because I'm, 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 I've got Walt Disney had more creative capability as Pinky than I do in my whole body, but he wrote that down. He envisioned something very real. And everybody thought he was, you know, smoking crack, you know, buying up hundreds of acres or thousands of acres in, in, in the swamp in Orlando. And even Roy Kroc from McDonald's, like it was a famous story that he had this idea that he was going to BS the bank to say that he's going to open up a uh, uh, McDonald's in every corner of the state of Illinois, wherever the hell he, he started his first McDonald's. And as he was saying that, he was like winking to his COO, like I'm just totally BSing the bank. But these people had big ideas and it helps to, to actually write down a big idea. You kind of trick yourself, you trick your subconscious mind into making it possible. And every time I got lost in the process of like, what am I going to do? What's the next turn? I don't, I'm, I'm lost. I don't know where I am in my, in my vision. I would turn back to that and reread it. And it was amazing and, uh, how, how I executed something that's, you know, that was just a, a, a f- kind of a fleeting dream and it was executed pretty close to that dream. But self management and not having managers was a big part of it. And Peter, you have it. If you reread it, you'll see how I talk about how these people are guided on their own to do things. And and that's a beautiful concept because work is not just for money, it's for fulfillment. And if you can turn your team on to pursuing their own fulfillment, it's not like you should train them and then they go open up a Chick-fil-A. It's you can actually they can co-create a vision with you. Synergy is is wonderful. You can express multiple visions. And they can synergistically flow together. They don't Erica, have to. Erica, I want to interject something about, about his vision. Were you, did you guys, uh, my guess is that the reason it all came to fruition at the rate that it did was because 
he's so open and transparent with the team and sharing his vision and so selfless in, in the actions he does that that the team probably rallied around him because obviously we don't we don't get where we are, you know, as as individuals by ourselves. That is absolutely right. He has every step of the way included his team a part of the process and you know, we have team meetings, we have quarterly team meetings, daily huddles, and we talk about those things often. But it was him sharing the information, sharing the vision and allowing us to have ideas that created the snowball effect of excitement, fulfillment, um, and inspiration and empowerment that we, too, as employees, have the ability to influence the business just as much as he did. It's, you know, it's funny. I talk with a lot of dentists and they say, God, you share all these numbers with your team and all this and that. And I kind of look at them like, well, you know, I guess there's a, there's a fear factor for some dentists. Like, I don't want them knowing my profitability because then they're just going to ask for a raise. And I don't want them knowing this because then, you know, so, so there's so different cultures in dentistry, you know, one where it's like, Craig, kind of like you said, uh, you know, the pencil pushing, just sharpen it, just come to work, do your job and go home. Don't worry about the finances. Don't worry what I'm making as a doctor. Don't worry how the business is doing. Just do your job. And you kind of went the exact opposite approach. You said, you know, I want to create this for the benefit of everybody, for the benefit of job stability, job growth. And everyone wants to work for a company that is not plateauing, but growing. I think it's interesting that uh, when we talk about, when you, when you converse with an employee, the only language that is used typically at the end of the day, when you really talk about value is just money. And it's really unfortunate because most people don't work for just money. You know, when you, when you query most people, it's experiences and feeling valued, feeling valued, but yet they come to the, and appreciation, but yet they come to the table and you take a relationship and just fully transactionalized. I don't know if that's a word I'm making it up, but (laughs) you make it transactional and any relationship, whether it's your wife or your friend that boils down into transaction starts to suck. I mean, any good relationship, like you think about your best friends, you're fighting over the check. But if you're, if you're with your wife, like I took out the trash last night, it's your turn today. I mean, that, that relationship is total shit. So we and we have to redefine work, and we have to redefine what work is in a dental office because we're actually helping people. Most work out there isn't that great. Most work is like screw the nut onto the bolt and move on to the next step, or sell the shitty condo thing that you're selling, or or upsell people for copper pipes when maybe CPBC is better. Who you know what I'm saying? Like we do noble good work. We actually help people. And the more we help people, the more we get money for it. Some people actually get money to hurt people. So it's kind of cool right. that we have a space in an industry that allows us to be compensated for giving help to people. It's really neat. Erica, anything else you want to add on that on that uh, that concept we were just talking about? No, I mean, what I've seen and with the experience you know, doing reviews for team members and everybody goes into your review, of course, expecting a raise. And what we know is most people feel that raises are given for being there for a year, just for doing their job and for doing their job well. And here and how it should be is you, you get raises for the results that you produce for doing, you know, above and beyond for, you know, 
contributing to the practice, saving the practice. Hold on, Erica, you kind of you kind of went in and out there. I guess the 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 Wi-Fi or something. Say it again. Where you were talking about going into a review, uh, people feel like they're given a raise. Yes. Should be given a raise. Correct. Most people, when they go into a review, they expect to get a raise just because they've been there for a year and because they've done their job and they've done a really good job at it. And we pay people, we give raises out for results and for team members, you know, saving the practice money, um, growing other team members to be more productive and, and leaders and for producing results. So... The idea that I've showed up for work means I get a raise is a concept that we don't implement here. And and when you shift that idea and you start asking them questions, you know, about, well, how many patients did you bring to the practice and how many team members did you train? How many um, new ideas did you bring to the table? All of those things then starts turning the team member's brain back on to say, hey, how am I contributing or participating outside of my job description um, to help the, the practice grow? And, and that's what, what extra money or raises is. As the practice becomes more profitable, therefore, we have more money then to, to give back to the people that are making that profitability happen. Yeah, so it's a value-based value-based contributions versus just a, a t- time quantification of like, oh, I've been here for seven years, I get a three percent raise because that's what inflation, you know, like. Right. And so, and you guys just base it on the contributions to the practice. But the raises are actually much larger, much better, because if we have a team member that comes in and says, "Hey, for instance." I was able to grow the Invisalign business, basically 50 cases within six months, doubling that to 100 cases in six months. So I was able to add, you know, an additional $50,000 to a production to the business. Mm -hmm. I think that that's worth a raise. And we think that absolutely. So when people can find their raise, as Dr. Craig would say, you want to raise, go find it. Well, the ways to do that is, is how can we get more production? How can we save the practice money? How can we train more people to do more things so that we can produce those, those uh, same tasks at the same time? So the, the team is encouraged to get raises, and the way they do it is by producing results. And that really falls in line with the whole core concept of what we're talking about today is the leadership and how it's delegated to a lot of people. And once you're getting people to rise up with the aspirations of, you know, maybe not, hey, I want to get a raise, but, you know, it obviously changes a person when they when they make that switch psychologically, like, I'm going to look for value that I can give to the practice, et cetera, et cetera. Like they become just organically a leader, yeah, it is, it is leader, leader. It's not leader, follower. So everybody is a leader, even the most mundane and uh, simple job like the, you know, remember when you were here, that woman, we have a Guatemalan like maid that like, you know, makes lunch for everybody. She like sweeps the floor and, but she knows better than anyone else, like how to feed us and how to clean the place. So any idea that we've tried to put into place, like someone, you know, someone says, oh, we should do it this way. Invariably, it's her that has to 
is the leader of that department. I mean, she's the one that affects the greatest change and knows it better than anybody else. So she shouldn't have to be subject to anybody else's ideas about what's the best thing. She'll check in with the team and find out what we want, but she knows best how to do it. And by the way, employees are all stakeholders in your business. If you have a hygienist that's thinking about leaving your office because someone's offering you $2 more and it's a startup office and that office goes belly up in three months, do you think she has a job and she doesn't have a job anymore? Or she may get like some doctors send their hygienist home when the schedule falls apart. So, I mean, you are, as a, if you're listening to this and you're an employee of a dental practice, an assistant, administration, or hygiene, you're investing with that business. If that business does well, it's going to take care of you. If it doesn't do well, you're going to be on, you're going to be kicked out of it. So why not? You are a business partner. So go find more value. I mean, Peter, you're a smart business guy. If one of your people came to you and said, Hey, listen, I need to make, you know, $60,000 a year. Or seventy thousand dollars a year, and maybe they're making twenty five now. But they said, "I'm going to make you four hundred thousand, you know, or five hundred thousand in gross profit because of my idea." You're like, "Yeah, sign me up. You can do that. You know, if you could get that type of multiple." But you know, our our greatest asset in any practice is our human capital. We focus so much on the physical capital, the Cerec machine, the pano, or the comb beam. But what's the ROI on an engaged person that's actually got their brain turned on that's yeah, making awesome. the place better? It's, it's immeasurable. And the largest part of our overhead, at anybody's overhead, at least 25%, is your people. You know, there's no other. Your clinical supplies should be a quarter or a fifth of that. So that's the greatest asset you have. So if you have an asset that's not engaged and doesn't have their brain turned on, that's a really big liability. Let's, let's talk about, let's give some advice to maybe the office. Let's go back to the four-person office, kind of like you guys talked about. So, Erica, what advice would you have um, for someone that is in the growth mode? You know, they want to, they really want to grow their practice, um, either revenues or size or another location, but they feel like their team or their current team might be an impediment to that progress. And maybe there's lack of leadership there. Maybe there's too much leadership, if you know what I mean. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Like, give some kind of advice as to kind of step by step what you would what you would do. Absolutely, and everybody is going to be unique and different. But the first thing I would start is by including the team in the vision and what needs to happen for the practice. So, making sure that everyone is completely aligned with the values, with what you want to create for the practice. And um, from there, having the team be a part of the decision-making process on what they want to do. So, for instance, um, if it's Meaning, they're, if they're not on board with the mission, then get off the bus real quick. Yeah, kind of absolutely. Okay. Built, right. Just making sure that, you know, when you say get everyone aligned, because yeah. sometimes that's a crucial conversation. Like, look, here's where I'm going. If you guys don't want to do it, then, like, let's just save us all time, effort, emotion, and get off and just tell me because there are going to be changes. It's going to be hard. It might suck at times, but there will be greener pastures for the benefit of everybody. Right? Absolutely. And we've gone through this process as well. We, we love everyone that comes through there and through here. And there's no hard feelings. If there's somebody that has a different vision or a different idea of what they want work to be, that's fine. We wish them the best. We maintain a friendship, but it doesn't work for here. And so our team understands and knows that we are not going to compromise our values and our vision. And everybody here is working towards that. 
And every single year, we create we create what we want to see for the practice, and we talk about that often about the results. Um, we measure where we're at and where we want to go, our progress along the way. Um, but definitely including them and what you want to see happen. And it's okay if that's not their vision. Um, you'll there's plenty of people out there that would gladly be a part of it. So step one is really a kind of a vision statement. And, and once the doctor or the leader, you know, I'm assuming at that, at this, at this, you know, the smaller level of like Greg was saying, a four or five person practice, it really should be the doctor leading the practice. Cause that's who, that's who people signed up to kind of be led by. So I would say that it defining the vision and then becoming transparent with the vision would definitely be the, the first step. And then kind of step two would be, you know, obviously putting that in motion and the people who are contributing to it, then they need to be rewarded for helping you get there. The people who are an impediment, then, then that's what I'm saying, the, the, the impediment to the progress, then the crucial conversation needs to ha- take place at that point. So I, I think I'm just trying to, what I'm trying to do is just break it down a little bit more because I, I am someone who likes a step-by-step cookbook method. And I know this, this won't be, this isn't, this is not obviously not a cookbook methodology, but but it's, sometimes it's helpful to break it into baby steps, you know, and, you know, how do you eat an elephant kind of one bite at a time? Um, well, it's also kind of just, it's just a reframing concept of how you approach work and employees is really what it is. So I, I think you, you get what you intend. And if you, if you go, so many dentists, I'm on tons of uh, Facebook chat rooms, dental chat rooms and stuff. And you hear it more than ever because of the millennial that's in the workforce now. You hear, how do you get people to show up? I can't get people to care. You know, and you know, you, that, that's, people don't give a crap. There's so much of that idea out there. And if that's how you really believe, if you really think that, if you're like, you know, you pay these people who don't even care, then, then you're going to get more of that. And this is just, it's not that it's such a cookbook, but it's just this way of looking at, an employee versus someone who's engaged. So the employee, you're assuming they're like a child, that they need boundaries, supervision, parenting, protection, like that type of idea versus, you know, an engaged stakeholder is an adult. Like, you know, they just need a vision, but they could be a champion for the cause if you explain it. So it's not like you get people and say, hey, go for it. You're, you seem like you're smart. Although, you know, Richard Branson, who, uh, who I spent some time with, ha- has a famous example of that, looking at a very well-qualified employee that sent a resume to him, a very, very good resume, albeit. He is famous for meeting with him for about a day and saying, you know, you're a really smart dude. Dive deep in my company, take some time and figure out a way to create a job for yourself. And that guy went on to create uh, Virgin America. Uh, at that point, uh, Richard had only uh, Virgin Atlantic or the, uh, the Virgin Airways, I guess. And he wound up spearheading what now became the, the domestic U.S. Virgin carrier. So it, it's not like you just set these people loose. But the, the dentist is the vision creator. So you can provide the seed that says, hey, make sure this is going. This is the outcome I want to receive. So you, you define what your result is. You know, we want our hygiene revenue to, you know, to be X or we want 5% or less cancellations or, you know, we want to make the, you know, we want to get 100 new patients a month. And there's, there's ways to figure that out. So I like that, that you kind of broke that down. And, and because like the goal setting aspect would be something that is super important. So after you defined your vision 
then like reverse engineering it and okay, how are we going to get here? Well, we have to raise the number of visits or we have to, you know, whatever your parameters or metrics that you think is going to get you there, then you're right. Write them down and track them, you know, with, with super intention and, and attention so that because kind of what you track increases. So I, I like what you just said there, Craig. I think that that really resonated with me. Well, the next step after that, after you set your goals, um, the important thing is ta- attaching a metric to those goals so that you can monitor the progress and how well that that's doing. So, um, for instance, if our goal is you know doing 100 Invisalign cases, well, we need to track monthly how many cases we have and right, how many more cases we need. Um, and the leadership comes in is that the leader is really is the voice. It's the person that's in the background that is um, keeping everybody accountable to their word. So if the team says, yes, we're going to do 100 Invisalign cases and we only have 10. So that leader is the one saying, hey, guys, what are we going to do? How are we going to do that? And making sure that they're asking those questions often, that they're being proactive, that they're ahead of the game to make sure they get that result no matter what. They're the cheerleader behind the team members. So they're the ones in the background that will help bring out the greatness in, those, in the other team members to get on board with that, with that process. Yeah, there's so many things that, that I could kind of comment on is related to what you just said about the numbers and the metrics and because, you know, and that kind of relates, it gets off the topic of leadership and more into just practice management and kind of things that you shouldn't do uh, when considering expanding, meaning that you don't want to just expand your problems. If you don't have a tight ship, don't expand that that aspect, meaning if, you're, if your overhead is run away, like don't expand, don't try and scale until you get your house in order. One thing that I kind of made the the conversion with years ago is I was making a lot of decisions that I was doing from a management and leadership by a gut feeling and just, you know, I just would have these, oh, well, I just feel like this is the right way to do it. And sometimes I was right and sometimes I was wrong and I had very costly uh, education. And, you know, I I realized really quick that, you know, gut decisions are, are not it's not a responsible thing to do because the lives of a lot of people are attached to the decisions that I make. So I became very disciplined and made myself make database decisions in the growth or just the, just the running of my operation and data rules everything. And so that's why I like, I like how you were talking about kind of setting these key parameters and making sure that like that's met all along the way as growth occurs. Well, an interesting thing to look at, Peter, is this. When you start out an organization, you start out with a dream. There's no data. So you you start out with gut ruling your world because, you know, like, let's take any, whether you're founding a dental practice, like, I think this is a good idea. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of competition. Like, it, it seems like it should work out. And gut is what gets you started. And at a certain point, what we came to, what we talked about in the beginning, what got you here won't get you there. At each level of you requires a different version of you. At a certain point, you have data, and gut is no longer the best measurement. It's no longer good just to do a gut check. You actually have to look at your numbers. The bigger you grow and the more moving parts, the gut becomes less and less and less. You got to see the data. But I think it's well, important. 
I will disagree with that, what you said about, like, I think this is a good location because there's huge data that can support, can support that as well. Like, yeah, but, but let's back up a step before that you graduate school. I think I have what it takes to run a dental practice. You know, I think I'm good. I think I could get a couple of people to work with me. I agree with that. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) I I might've used the wrong uh, subset of that, but gut is gut and vision is what has you jump off and start something because statistically speaking, 95 or 98% of businesses fail. So, and, and I've seen good dentists go out of business that are, that cut great crown preps. They just don't know how to manage a team. And there's wonderful, there's a, a surgeon in town that's amazing. He lectures everywhere. He can't stay busy on his own. So there has to be a certain amount of like, this feels good. I'm going to do it. And then, then at a certain point you transition and say, I got to look at the numbers. So I, I think it's like evolution. It's an evolution a little bit. So what, what have you, what has helped you kind of both of you? I'm asking you, like, has there, Erica, you mentioned you went to some courses on leadership and just kind of obviously boots on the ground experience, Craig, that's kind of helped you. But like, let's say someone's looking for, I mean, have there been any books or lectures or courses that have kind of moved the needle for either one of you? Yes, I read a lot of books. I try to read a book or two uh, every month. And uh, again, I don't Zuckerberg. (laughs) I, I don't let anything get in the way of my results. I'm very I'm very driven. So when my excuse, when I, when I got married and had a kid, my excuse became, hey, I, I, can't, I don't have time to read books, um, I went to audiobooks. So I listened to a lot of audiobooks on my commute to and from work, and I enjoy listening to um, a wide range of things from uh, tribal leadership, actually, which was recommended by Dr. Craig. I've read Chuck Blakeman's book, Why Making Money is Killing Your Business, I've read my very first one that that started moving the needle for me was Think and Grow Rich. And what was so significant about that was it was just several stories of people that had nothing and they created whatever it is that they wanted. And they just the, the commonality between all of those great people and them creating greatness was their desire to want it and to have it. So for me, when I started out early on, I said, gosh, I don't have an MBA. I don't have experience in practice management. You know, who am I to do this? And, but, but I, I was always intrigued by it. But because I said, well, I can't define myself as someone that um, doesn't have the paper or the title that I can go out and get that knowledge. And we have so many resources. Um, I would go into the bookstore and I would go into the leadership section and I would literally look for a book that had a title that popped out and and I read. And a lot of the books that I read also recommend other books that um, gave the author inspiration and, and I would purchase and buy those. I also would look into um, continuing education on leadership and also practice management. Uh, you do have to know about the business. So I would partner with my my reps, Patterson and Invisalign, uh, quite frequently in Nobel. And I'd reach out to them and say, hey, do you have any um, courses coming up, any webinars? Um, and sign me up. And I, I just, I was doing one or two a week. 
Um, so I was just hungry for the knowledge. I, I wanted it, and I, I did what I needed to make that happen for myself. And I enjoy it. It's fun for me. So, Craig, would you would you say that having someone like Erica is like how important to that is to the practice? Well, without um, taking anything away from Erica, I believe that all of us dentists have someone in our practice that is their version of an Erica, um, someone who is hungry to do more. Um, that is evolving along the path of our of our practices, business growth. Um, and, and anxious to do more, but yet we stifle them, um, when they come up with their first suggestion, it might, it, cause they might be clinical in nature. They, they, the first suggestion might be clinical. Like, Hey, every time you do this, you always wind up in trouble. Why don't you try it this way? And then most dentists will say like, Hey, what dental school did you go to? Like you better back off. I'm not paying you to right. think, you know? So that was the, that's the first step to, to kill off the Erica in your practice. Tell them not to think. Um, but if you encourage them, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I never saw that. Yeah, you're right. I do do that. You know, okay, well, why don't you take on more? And, you know, and little by little by little, you cultivate these people. And that's leadership, making people better all around you. And, and, and it's, it's a two way street. You can't help someone without them turning back around and helping you as well. So I, I would position if you ask, if the dentists that are listening to this, just ask themselves, is there one person that behaves more like a business partner? than just a traditional employee? Is there one person that acts like a stakeholder? Not that you could make into one, but that's already showing up like that. I bet you everybody has at least one. That's your Erica. That's your person that's in there that is capable of further growth. So you don't need to go out and find one. You just need to go out and develop one. And I'm really fortunate that I'm working hand in hand with Chuck Blakeman now. We actually have a seminar um, that goes on several times a year called the Get Off the Treadmill Seminar or get off the treadmill summit. And it's really wonderful because it's not where a doctor just goes out, learns a bunch of stuff, comes in on Monday morning, ripping and ready to roll. And then all the people in the office like, oh, don't worry, Dr. Jones goes through this every couple of months. It'll be gone by Wednesday. Just like smile and nod your head. It'll all be out of his head by Wednesday. This is a, a, a tactical seminar where there's actually some traction because you're going to bring your own version of uh, your Erica or your practice optimizer and together you're going to strategize and leave with the big rocks you need to move for the next quarter or next six months. Um, and we're doing these all over the country. We got one coming up in Boston, um, July 27th. And we're keeping it intentionally really small because every time I go to these seminars, I'm so upset because everybody's just selling you a bunch of crap. Like I went to one recently, it remained nameless, but I was like, they're charging me $800 to sell me shit. Like it was just a, it was a, it was a lecture guised as a sales pitch one by one by one. Everybody's going up and selling their crap. And what I did find valuable, however, is in between them trying to sell me a bunch of crap, I could meet with other dentists and the mastermind quality of interacting with other dentists is invaluable. It's, it's immeasurable. So the cool thing about these summits is you go in and we keep it small. We only keep 30 people there. We're intentionally small so that we can keep it open as an open forum and learn from each other. So it's a really neat thing. And I think it's what dentistry really require, is needing right now. Um, so you can actually um, visit. We can provide a link for that. I can tell them what it is. But it's the um, gotsummit.com. It's G-O-T-T, right? Yeah, G-O-T-T, summit.com. Um, and uh, 
register for it because it's, I think it's one of the greatest things that dentistry's got right now. And, and I'm not saying it because I'm a lecturer and I'm a small part of it. Chuck Blakeman's really who's bringing this massive uh, amount of information, statistics. And really my position and Eric's position is to make it relatable to dentistry because the dentists that are out there like, oh, what does he know? He doesn't run a dental practice, but I'm telling you it works for dentistry. It's incredibly valuable for dentistry. So it's cool stuff. Well, Erica, do you have anything kind of ad- advice in, in closing? I mean, yeah, I, I um, believe we're kind of going on about 45 minutes, and I want to make sure that, that we get uh, we get the value and the information to anyone. Is there anything you think that we've missed, any core concepts of, of kind of leadership and team leadership that you think we've missed? Well, a couple of things I just wanted to reinforce is um, mastermind with your team. So as Dr. Craig was saying, we mastermind with other dentists or we network with them. You can do the same with your team members. They have a lot more knowledge, experience, and ideas than we give them credit for. And reward and recognize when the team are doing things right. Because we tend to focus on the things that aren't going right because it's making noise, it's loud. And we forget about maybe the 25 things that are going really great. So we take a moment to think about what things are going great, who's doing great, um, and actually acknowledge them for that. People work a lot more productively and a lot harder uh, for you than just. Um, I think that's great advice, and that's something I'm guilty of myself is not kind of acknowledging the good stuff and pointing out, you know, the deficiencies. And maybe I, you know, I I, I lead by hard love. Maybe my team would say, but so I do agree with that because. You know, I think that that just works for people better as you get, you get more of what you praise, that's you know? Right. Yeah. That's, that's great absolutely true. Everybody. Like there's that subtle bit, that business philosophy, try to find people doing things right, catch people doing things right. And it's so true. Um, and, and I, I don't, I mean, I don't want anybody to think here that I'm some sort of expert in this. All I can do is I can see what works. But yet our automatic is to look for what's wrong. So even before the podcast, I was talking to Eric. I'm like, hey, what about this? What about that? So, okay, what about that? Well, what about this and that and the other thing too? I mean, if you're going to point out four things that you need work, can we at least point out four things that are going well? You know, and and that subtle shift in the mindset can cultivate not only more success, but more fulfillment. Because as you and I always talk about, success is only one part of fulfillment. You could have everything you ever wanted and want to like freaking off yourself, uh, you know, so it's, it's fulfillment. We're all seeking happiness, not just economic reward. I love that. And I think one, one last key concept is um, leadership isn't where the leader has all the answers. And it's where that leader accepts and recognizes that we need other people and their experience and their knowledge in order to make all of this come together. So it's... It's not we, we have some great gift that we know is going on and that what we do is perfect. It's we recognize greatness in others and uh, we're able to kind of maximize what their skills are, what they bring to the table and the benefit of the team and, and the practice. I love that, Eric. I really I do. And the fact that you kind of, you know, leadership, everyone thinks as, as you know, you know, Craig, Craig thinks of posters where the eagle is soaring. Like I, I kind of think of Braveheart. Yeah, I mean, that, the point know, that, is, it's one person, you know, and, and Erica, you're right. It's, you know, meaning common knowledge says, oh, it's one person kind of leading us into, into war. And that isn't the case um, for, for successful leadership. You know, it's more of 
it's co-leadership and team leadership and kind of all boats rising, you know? I love yeah, that. That's you know, that's you know what? That we're just been sold a bag of goods. Like when you think about iconic leadership, like the Lee Iacocas and the Bravehearts and all this stuff, they're not that effective. They make great stories, you know, um, because it's a romantic story. But when you read Good to Great, the the really really effective, or a book called actually Multipliers is a wonderful book. So they talk about all these like really iconic leaders that are a cult of personality. They're typically like, you know, six foot ten and they great talkers and they're really charismatic, but they leave voids, huge voids, and they make people stupid around them because it's really the the leader that actually gets his people to do what they need to do and actually makes his people believe it was their idea. Like there's a famous quote about I think I can't remember, but the the best leader, I think it was by Lao Tzu, is like you make you make other people they don't even know that you were there they thought it was all their own idea you know and that's the leadership that we're talking about we're not talking about cuz dentists are not really going to be that charismatic charging braveheart figure it doesn't so it was a loud to quote it says a leader is best when people barely know he exists when his work is done his aim fulfilled they will say we did it ourselves so uh, that's a great quote. A leader's best yeah. when people barely know he exists. That's that's what we're talking about here. Not the brave heart. Because let's face it, there's not too many dentists that are brave heart. Or the eagle, Craig. Or eagles, yeah. <laughs> we're ducks, but we swim pretty fast and we're doing well. Erica, thanks for uh, carving time out of your day. I mean, all that you got going on and, and uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and you know, dispelling your value and wisdom to, uh, to the listeners. I know they appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And, um, I appreciate you guys having me on this. And if I can even help one person or, um, kind of be the spark for someone's fire, then, um, I'm, I'm happy. with. All right, guys. I know you guys are sitting in your office, just waiting to recount the, the busy day you probably had. So I will, yeah. we will, we will conclude and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk soon. Craig. Thanks, Dr. Bolden. All right, buddy. Over and out. Thanks so much for listening to Bulletproof Dental Practice with your hosts, Dr. Peter Bolden and Dr. Craig Spodak. Online at BulletproofDentalPractice.com. We'll catch you next time.